Welcome to Sighs and Whispers, an interview podcast series about cultural history. I'm Laura McClaus Holmes, a fashion and cultural historian. The creative impulse can come to fruition in a multitude of different media. While I've tried to interview creators of all forms, this is the first time on the podcast that I've spoken with someone who works in sound. Charlie Morrow is a sound artist, composer, musician, producer, conceptualist, performer, magazine editor, and former jingle writer. A true multi-hat, his creative projects have included chanting and healing works, museum and gallery installations, large-scale festival events, radio and TV broadcasts, film soundtracks, advertising jingles, and commercial soundscapes. And since we're talking about sound, let me just apologize here for any background noises. I'm still working on finding the ideal recording situation in the midst of Brooklyn. Morrow transmutes sound into something larger, making performance pieces and happenings that encompass space and interactivity to make for a multi-sensory experience. I first came across Charlie's work a few years ago, when I happened upon mention of a solstice event he had put on in New York City. Researching further, I found that he organized his summer solstice celebration annually from 1973 to 1989. These large-scale events were collaborative projects that brought together many musicians, artists, performers. We were originally supposed to have this conversation in person a few years ago, with me traveling to his home and archive in Vermont, but due to various life events, we eventually connected on Zoom a few months ago. As Charlie discusses in our conversation, he came to music making and an interest in sound from a very young age. After getting a degree in composition, he established a new wilderness foundation with the poet Jerome Rothenberg. This was an arts organization with the mission of new and old explorations in sound and oral poetry. They wrote, recorded and broadcast music, published the new wilderness letter in Ear Magazine, and incubated startups that promoted a cross-disciplinary mix of arts. Interested more in the immersive quality of environmental soundscapes, since 1973 he has put on an incredible number of happenings. Not just the solstices, but everything from county fairs to citywide spectacles that included thousands of people. To support himself, he established a highly successful commercial music business, Charles Morrow & Associates, which wrote a number of famous jingles over a 20-year period. In the early 1990s, Morrow shifted his commercial career to sound design, later developing his own trademarked Morrow Sound 3D Soundscapes that is used in museums all over the world. Still composing and creating events today, he usually splits his time between Helsinki and Vermont. Due to the pandemic, he has been in Finland for the last year. Last fall, an art center in Helsinki showed a retrospective of his work, which included a virtual solstice event. I found Charlie an immensely interesting person to talk with. The way he understands sound in our environment, his belief in the healing power of sound, his passion for connection, his interest in shamanism and chanting. There is so much vitally important thought in this conversation. Enjoy. How are you today? Excellent, thank you. And yourself? Good. Where on earth are you? <laughs> I'm in Brooklyn. Um, and thank you for meeting me today from Helsinki. How is it there? It was snowing It's uh, yesterday, but today it's a little calmer. Mm -hmm. It's uh, still very, you know, it's rather dark at this time of the year. Yeah. So a day you know, usually lasts from around 10 in the morning till about three in the afternoon. So right now we're just getting into twilight. It's a little blue in the sky, that kind of blue that you get after sunset. I mean, I know that you usually split your time between there and Vermont. Have you been there the whole pandemic? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trapped by the pandemic. I'm, um, 
I, I'm an elder, and so um, I'm at risk, and I'm not permitted to travel. I also, my wife's 98-year-old mother lives with us, and so I'm a potential carrier. So it's been, we figured that we'll just be a bubble until mm-hmm. things get better. I, I normally am a slightly more time uh, out of Finland than in Finland. Mm-hmm. It varies on my workflow because I basically travel where work is. Yeah. I'm still still a working artist. And uh, so I, I try to be in Vermont as much as I can. I, I love Vermont. And, and I have my archive there and a, and a full-time archivist whose work I oversee. So that's always very pleasant. Plus I, um, I'm asthmatic and I'm truly healthy in the mountains of Vermont. <laughs> In these interviews, I usually I interview different creatives. I'm a historian, and I started my work mostly in fashion, but then I've sort of moved into all the creative arts. And I'm really interested in people who've had long, really interesting, varied careers and how they've managed to make them work in a world that's not always the easiest for artists. Well, thank you for asking. I'm yours. Just ask away, and uh, I'm happy to meet you. And uh, I commend you on your interest. I mean, in sound, they say that in order to create sound, you have to have listeners. Mm-hmm. So that it makes me feel that it's all worthwhile if someone's interested. I watched all the different the interviews and the solstice from that new show you just had in Helsinki. Was it fun putting that exhibition together? It, it was extraordinary um, because I have um, always suffered from pushing ahead as quick, you know, as prop, as quickly as I can tying up each project and doing things, but always off to the next one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my retrospective skills uh, are not as, not, not as well honed. And so to be working with a really thoughtful uh, curator uh, was, was, was amazing. Uh, Anders Koiger is the guy's name. And he, he's a Swede. He's working for a... Um, a, a gallery here, which is sort of an, a small art, it's an art hall, which is kind of a, com- a European word for a, um, a place where artistic things happen, but is not officially a museum. And so it's, um, it's able to do all sorts of things that interest it. And so art halls typically uh, have this old fashioned idea of um, introducing people to things they might not have come across otherwise, that sense of discovery, you know? And, and I, it, it's been very thought-provoking because uh, so much of my work has been involved with the public, public events, public broadcasting. I've actually, at one point, was in, more in the mainstream, uh, doing more um, you know, concerts and concert halls and uh, mainstream recordings and so forth. And I took a, a detour into working in, as a public event artist and public uh, broadcasting and uh, making an, a newspaper your ear magazine and, and others publications that were intended to be, you know, very broad. And so suddenly having the, the expertise of a curator kind of reminded me, you know, that's like what my media started. People started to produce things because they thought other people would be interested, you know, as well as just to make money. So it's been mind blowing to, you know, dance with Anders. You said your retrospective skills aren't as honed, but you must have you kept a really amazing archive, which a lot of artists don't keep. You know, it seems like, at least from what I can tell, you kept a lot of documents, everything. camera and everything. Yeah, I did. I'm my mother's son in that respect. In our attic, I think she had the first string, piece of string she ever 
came across, you know, it's a, <laughs> but that's different. I'm a doer. I make things, uh, I'm, I produce things and, and I uh, keep, keep all the assets well. And so that others can get back to them. That part I'm, uh, you know, I think is my way, but what I'm not good at was to look back and make any sense of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, cause it's always, whatever was my current state of mind took over from the look backwards. Anders warned me, he said that, you know, often doing a, a retrospective can unearth incredible feelings. And so it, it's funny because after all of this, in the course of doing this, one of the projects I'm working on is with a uh, scientist at the University of Vermont, my home state, uh, at the medical school for the medical, medical use of sound, particularly for sleep. And I was floored to find somebody interested in that because, I mean, I've always been involved with what music could be doing. I mean, I'm theoretical in terms of the engineering and the um, you know, principles behind things, but actually it's a lot of very hands-on doing. And he said to me, oh, well, then I'm going back to the writings of Claude Shannon. I said, well, I knew Claude Shannon. I said, well, it's very interesting. He said, what is it? Uh, well, I'm reading a, a paper about Claude's work. I said, well, send it to me. And I, I read it and I was like overwhelmed. It was the uh, last step so far in Anders Krieger warning about doing a retrospective. Claude Shannon, as it turns out, is the father uh, of information theory. He's a mathematician and an engineer. Mm-hmm. I, I met him uh, through a young mathematician when I was a, a student at Columbia College in New York. And when I called him up on the phone, it was because I had heard about his work through through mathematician and I was floored the way he thought about how to organize how things are organized and and how to think about that organization and to make it work well the basis of Claude's work is in fact the digital universe everything we're doing from um, computers to modern communication to recording I mean literally the entire turn of page of how the world controls and keeps track of itself spins out of Shannon's brain. And I remember talking to him on the phone and he was the most modest, laid back guy. All he did was joke. He was a silly man, wonderfully silly, silly man. And I regretted that I didn't make further contact with him, but it, it stuck with me how somebody with a brain like that could really see it all, so to speak, could, um, could be that laid back, that unimposing, and just not push his self on you when you were in touch with him. And it, it all gushed out of me. Shannon had influenced literally um, all, all life that we've lived. It seems like you've worked with and met so many incredible people, even just the people you knew in college. You've lived through a lot of different fascinating time periods as well. But can we maybe just go back to the beginning? Well, somewhere in my 20s, as part of work that I was doing, I became interested in remembering before I was born and I was able to capture it. So the beginning of my story was that I woke up before I was born and I heard sounds from outside my mother. And it was a, um, obviously an electrifying experience because as I woke up, I was suddenly receiving audio information. Before that, it was mainly heat and, uh, and, and, and my mother's emotions, which uh, I remember very well how there was weather as an unborn child, that as she was going through a day or she was very active, she was a practicing physician. 
and, and an extremely strong and active person. And so I had it. <laughs> there I was, a part, part of her system. I was locked into her system. It was really something, because as I started to hear more and more of the outside world, I then had some flashes of light on my eyes. And then eventually the um, birth itself was very, very dramatic. I mean, that's probably one of the most dramatic things all humans and all mammalian forms experience when we transition from being inside, from in the world of, of liquid to the world of air. And so the first thing that happened for me was that as my nostrils cleared, and as I got over all the banging about of getting born, I was overwhelmed by the smell. I would, uh, I would identify then as, my, as the doctor who had birthed me, who was really stinky. I later on recognized that in locker rooms and in sports as the smell of, of humans. The smell has always been a big part of my life. I was just talking with my 98-year-old mother-in-law yesterday about how life changed enormously for all of us because we've started to wash where where deodorants and started to feel that human smells should be eradicated and how that's different from place to place. And she remembered too how she used to know people by smell. I remembered really knowing people by smell. And I think that made it possible for me to have a pet dog that I was very close to for most of my childhood, that dogs share that same smell aspect of it. Going on from those early stages, I um, was aware of language, that there was a understanding before language, pre-language, but I didn't know what it was. I mean, obviously, in hearing sound from outside my mom, I didn't know what they were talking about. I wound up recreating that as part of a project for a night program on German radio many years later, where I literally recreated what I heard because it had stuck, it stuck with me. Uh, and they really had the facilities to enable me to really do that nicely uh, in Cologne. How did you recover those memories? Was it through therapy? I did it through memory, one step at a time, usually a harshman, so that I could remember that sequence of the thrashing in the moment of birth and then the air and coughing and smelling the stink of a human being. And that memory was so strong. And so I figured that memories like these work like a ladder, that you can get a rung in place, that you can place your memory on that ladder rung. Mm -hmm. And so I went back from that. And then what I remembered from before that was the calm. I remembered how calm I was, only and being sort of jostled by my mother's motions and and emotions. And I remember being part of her system, part of her body. So immediately that transition, the harshness of the transition was preceded by the last moments of not having to worry about keeping my veins and digestive system and anything about my body. The body machine was, was being run by my mother's machine. It was like starting a car on a cold day and clipping clips on your battery to get the battery to <laughs> get the car to turn over, which, which is somehow, when it happened, reminded me of that. <laughs> I then traveled back from that, and I remembered flashes of yellow and orange. I had never seen anything because I was in the dark inside another body. And then I started to remember the voices. So it happened backwards, one strong memory at a time. All of those really, I guess, intense sensations, obviously you did a certain, you know, you made a piece about it, but also did the sort of the sounds of the body, like her, her heartbeat and all of that, did that impact your interest in sound? I think so. Well, she was always a very um, sound-oriented person. She's a physician who was uh, trained as a psychiatrist. So she's listening to voices, listening to people, 
taking the full person into consideration, an intense and uh, responsive person for sure. First of all, to tell you, when I built the sound environment of being my mother, the first part of it was the sound of her heart and the sound of my own little heart. So you hear a gadoonk, a gadoonk, a gadoonk for mom, and then tick, 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 tick. A little baby's heart goes very fast. And I had to, part of, a big part of the work that I do is always to try to get the facts. So I heard recordings of baby, baby heartbeats. And I remembered um, the heartbeat of my daughter when she was, before she was born. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I definitely influenced sound because uh, I was thinking about all those heartbeats. And, and then after that, I think breath, breath has been the basis of everything I do since um, I compose with my voice, I speak, um, and being asthmatic, I've had to overcome times of feeling like I was choking. I sleep with a CPAP machine, uh, uh, and so um, air, and the sound of air, is, is, is a huge part of my life, uh, maybe much lighter, much, much more so <laughs> uh, than for others. And so um, it's a big part, I mean, the most recent piece that I did was a piece called Four Winds. It was four French horn players in four corners of the world playing a piece. And it was based, it's not built the way music's built. It's built the way herds of animals, flocks of geese function. Almost all, all of my wave music pieces are all based on that, which means that they're all playing the same kind of thing, the way a cow or a dog or whatever speak the same kind of phrases and they echo and communicate to each other basically with the same material, mm -hmm. which is different from the way we're talking now. We're talking now with words and sentences and ideas, which are a form of superstructure over deeper structures of breath and uh, shared emotion. So I've been deeply influenced by all of that because when I heard nature communing like that or morning choruses of birds, when I hear all that communication, it, I feel at home on earth. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was a kid, I became a radio amateur when I learned to talk Morse code and I heard through headphones and speakers the sound of the ether. Eventually, I would learn that some of those sounds were the sounds of stars. I mean, that's the analog world. I was involved in the analog world where radio were signals from sources, as opposed to what Claude Shannon remarkably changed. He discovered, and the most image, most beautiful description of it was imagine light on a stairway going up. Each step cuts the light and the height of each stair gives you the depth of the cut as though it were sushi. <laughs> and the thickness of the light is the thickness of the fish. <laughs> Based on that idea, you could then screen and put into parcels information and keep track of it. And essentially what you get then is lossless information where each step you could decide on what, what, what that chunk of light is about. And the same thing is then with sound, heat, all sensation. And Claude somehow got that. And to be the person to sort of conceptualize that is so definitely beyond my, my brains. Um, it was beyond his too. That's what was so great about meeting him. He did not, he hadn't put it together. He, he didn't know why he should. He was irritated by people saying, well, when was the moment when this, come on, man, you know, 
it's like somebody's just come back from telling you that your house is on fire and the whole house has just been saved. And you want to, well, when did you first notice the smoke? When did this happen? How did you, what were you doing at the time? Come on, man, I got to go and have dinner, you know? <laughs> I'm fascinated by the, like the ham radios and everything. I was reading a quote from you where you're talking about it. And I was like, I don't even understand exactly how that would work. First of all, almost any kind of um, technology, when people first start doing it, there are all sorts of people doing it until it becomes formalized. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you think about photography. Now, somebody discovered that light would fill a room through a tiny, tiny little hole. And then they discovered that it was inverted. And suddenly they had these chambers in which you could see inverted light. And people would go and see them and some people would use them in different ways. And uh, so when radio started, you know, interestingly enough, radio was invented as a two-way medium. It's a communication, just like we're talking. Radio was not invented to be sending people prepared material. Announce announcements would be that, or am I taking a moment to answer your question? You're taking a moment to ask your question. But in the beginning of radio, there was all different kind of amateurs, people doing things that were just interesting for them. And so there's this um, access to radio that fascinated me. At first, when I inter was interested in radio, I learned about making a crystal set. And you could, I had already experienced something weird when I was a little kid getting fillings in my teeth, where suddenly like, I don't know whether it was lemon juice or something, but I was hearing talk, talking in my head. And that was because the filling with a little lemon juice or whatever it was, enabled my, my body to hear radio signal. And then I, I built, a, I discovered in, I guess in the Boy Scouts, uh, that you could build a little device and hear radio because my parents had a radio at that time, but I didn't, it was already a commercial radio, it was you turn a knob, you turn to a number or a click to a preset. But no, that radio coming through my teeth made me interested in finding out about radio where you could talk and listen. Both very important because once you had something that could listen, you were already in this wonderful, uh, imagine for a moment that you have a hole in a wall and you look out and you see a world and the world is limited by the size of the hole and you're looking with one eye. So that shows you, you can see a certain distance, you can see a certain intensity of light, I mean, your eye is an instrument and it has, it can select things, it's sensitive to some things and it can sort things out and then your brain can try to make sense of it. Mm -hmm. And that's what a radio set does, every one of those things. It has a distance it can see, it has a certain amount of sound that it can re you know, receive and transmit as, uh, as audio to someone. And then it has a certain amount of ability to zero in on it, to focus it. The ear can focus the way the eye focuses. That process of learning to flex my ear, the way I would look with my eye through that hole in the wall, listening to a universe with my ear, fascinated me because uh, I realized that I couldn't turn my ear off. I could cover it, I could close my eye. And, so, and, and I would get blasts that would make my eye reflexively close. Totally different experience. And I could see in front of me. I could hear, though, all around me. I could see the shape of things. 
and I could know something's over here, over here and here. But with sound, I could hear where it was. And something amazing was happening with both of them. I had to know what was going on. So how did that happen? Somewhere the librarian in my head was capturing all the information it could ever since I was born. And I would know if I heard a loud sound of something that had hurt me as a kid, that I would really be very careful about that. And so there's this library that's filling up with experiences that I can get back to, but I'm in the present moment. And so there's this interesting thing of being both right here and be able to get back through that experience library and then know, well, why do I know some things so clearly and why are some things so fuzzy? That's in a way what happens when you look out in the world and it's how you certainly look out when you look through a medium like, like a radio. And with that, I began to wonder, how could I talk to someone? And there was a kid in the neighborhood who had built a little radio set. And so I was able to listen and watch. And then I was able to, I, I learned Morse code. And that was a really amazing experience because Morse code doesn't work like speech at all. It's all dots and dashes and rhythm. So for example, when you have that ability to communicate just with those sounds, it's like music. It has to do with style. And telegraphers would have style. And there would be really great ones and really awkward ones, learning ones, well-experienced ones. And so, for example, the call that says, I want to talk to you. There's a nice situation, nice politics in, in old radio where you do CQ, CQ, I'm seeking you. And the letter C becomes, and the letter Q. In the oral world, beyond writing and so forth, people are fascinated by things that translate from letters into words. This inter interchangeability of letters and words and meanings are so, so, so amazing. I've done an interview with uh, Sun Ra, the jazz musician, as part of my 1989 solstice. And recently my publisher in Los Angeles saw that in our archive, there was a Sun Ra interview. We decided that, well, I should uh, transcribe it. I went back into it and I, I was totally dazzled by Sun Ra's politics and Sun Ra's ability to just play with, with sound. Uh, he was talking about God and he was talking about sound and he was talking about Jesus and Jesus being the sun. And we were doing Kim Sun Ra, me doing sun celebrations. And S, he says, in English, we have S-U-N. And in French, you have S-O-N. But S-O-N, that's also the sun and so forth. And he was going back and forth with all of that kind of talk, which is very old generation. People don't talk quite like that anymore. And that was the world that was happening in radio amateurs for me, where you were hearing dots and dashes. And they also started to form rhythms. So, um, for example, um, CQ, as I was starting with, C is da, 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 da. So that means dash, dot, dash, dot. Da, 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 is dash, dash, dot, dash. So da, 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 da. And you'd hear people out there doing that. Years later, when I began to communicate with fish, when I discovered fish language was rhythmic and worked like Morse code in many ways. And it had the, um, the fish 
had attitude, just like the telegraphers, <laughs> where a dominant fish, for example, uh, the toadfish, would make its sound, and the fish was going, ah, 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 until another fish started to answer, ah, 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 and got on his frequency, and then try to get them to play faster, ah, 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 until another toadfish way off in the corner would go, ah, ah, and then he'd pick up players. And so the fish is chorusing and doing things like that turned out to be a social activity that's been part of life ever since we could receive vibrations. And so now you maybe know what I mean by playing with sound, because it's just very simple bits of sound that people can uh, work with. I was more involved with radio than I was with music initially. It also satisfied my tinkering because I would put up antennas and build radio box, radio equipment and uh, doing things with my hands like that was, was, was a lot of fun. I'd been interested in music. I was playing a little piano, but I was never, never got too far with it. The piano in our house was on the first floor and my parents, both being doctors, had their offices downstairs and the piano was very annoying. Uh, and my cousin had visited at one point was a trumpet player. And so uh, I decided I wanted to learn the trumpet. So I could play the trumpet upstairs and not bother my folks <laughs> while they were doing medicine down in the basement. I think music freed up for me when I was in the Boy Scouts. I guess I was around 12 or so. And I went to scout camp 11 or 12 and I became the bugler. And in a scout camp, there would be different areas, which would mean I'd have to play the bugle calls for different times of day in different directions. So I'd have to play it once in one direction in the north, once in say the east and so forth. And I became very interested in directionality because it was fantastic to be able to play something like Reveille and energize people in the morning. And you play it first one direction and you know people have heard it. So you want to do something a little different with it. And so you're not boring them and you'll have something to talk about over breakfast other than if you fucked up, which I mean, being a bugler, you could easily mess up the call. It's morning, your lips can slip. It's sometimes cold in the morning. But the idea of playing in different directions, it's still there in a piece like The Four Winds. And it must have meant something historically because directionality is the base, is, is part of all mythology and religion. In choosing an image for that concert, I found a medieval manuscript with the four winds and their names in Greek. And each of the winds, of course, symbolizing something different, I guess, depending on the in what season different activities happened, say in Greece at the time that the names were given. I always love it when you can see someone's passions, how they've all come together from childhood and continued through their lives and shifted. Because a lot of people don't, a lot of, there's a lot of people who reject their childhood and childhood interests, you know? <laughs> it's true. I'm definitely very much the same person I was as a child. So I'm excited when I meet other artists who have taken that on and find ways to reshape and rework and relook at things that affected them when they were growing up. You know, once you became a trumpet player, but you were then going to go to medical school, right? Second. Yeah, I was going to go to medical school, absolutely. But I had studied to be a composer very early on. Okay. In fact, I was writing little melodies into, once I knew music notation, I was writing to notebooks. I have things from when I was like six that I did. It was uh, always, you know, for a friend, some kind of a gift or something that I would hope would uh, catch someone's attention. 
Uh, and I guess also with it, that was a way of being a show off, uh, trying to be unique and uh, have some attention. For sure though, medicine and chemistry, which is um, what I studied in order to be a pre-med student, have totally influenced what my music is. I've never stopped being a would-be doctor. I've never stopped being involved with healing. I've never, I mean, I, I live my parents' dream. They were doctors because they felt that they could be useful in the community, mm -hmm. help people, and also live well. They had both of them come from poor backgrounds and they were both successful and together they were a wonderful team. Uh, they were both extraordinary managers of their time, of their resources, of their relationships. They were really systematic people who gave great support to each other and to their children. It was interesting being the child of the two physicians because that labored entirely my position seeing healing. I mean, my father was extraordinarily angry about any notion that healing should be done by other than a trained physician and that one should take seriously expertise. And I've always, always agreed with him totally on that. And one of the moments in my career when I felt since I was doing healing ceremonies and um, healing was a part of my vocabulary as an artist, not to confuse myself with, let's say, new agery. The word new age has come in, into bad repute for me. I mean, new age started out as a great idea, the age of Aquarius, positive time of change, but new age has come to mean hucksterism taking advantage of gullible people and even overstating your own power. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the part that really touched me was the uh, oath of the doctors my parents spoke about, how their oath was, was never to take advantage of the information they had against people and to help a person heal themselves. I mean, the two parts of it are very important when you think about professional ethics, as well as just the idea that a person has to heal themselves and the doctor allows that. But then with modern science, there's a lot of agents of that that are, there's no joking about. I mean, I, I find it very interesting to compare the uh, Finnish and European approach to medicine with that in the US. My brothers uh, and his wife are both family physicians. They are also activists in terms of helping community and um, empowering people and big pharma has always been a mixed bag, you know. It's not social it's, in Finland, right? Uh, well, it's, it, it's social in the sense that it, the state provides a certain amount of medical care in return for the taxes. And so in that sense, it's social. I mean, but the United States does also. There's a social ingredient. If you pay tax money and you get back something towards, towards health, public health and private health. And I've been angry by so-called righteous people, so-called tarring ideas of medicine that are paid for by the state and received by people as being, you know, with this false rhetoric of social and communist. Those, those are words that were, are out of the 30s. It's almost a century of manipulative politicians trying to use words to skip taking care of people. <laughs> Mm -hmm. which is what it's really about. The most people who are using those words have no idea what the definition of socialism and communism is. I'm glad to hear you say that. I mean, we all, everything changes every year. Yeah. But I'd say that I like to think of it as really what are our obligations 
to each other and what's the obligations of the country that we're in and the state that we're in, the community we're in to provide for people and give them their money's worth if they're gonna take taxes. Yeah. And also uh, what guidelines and guardrails should be in place. I live in Vermont where if there was not volunteer ambulance corps and volunteer fire departments, houses would burn down and people would die. And some of that is paid for by donations, some of it from taxes, but there it is in a, in a nutshell. In the city of New York, it's completely opposite. I mean, you get public services and then you have people taking advantage of them and usually from the top. Having well, this one guy, I remember, I remember he cited me in Congress because I gave a concert with Fish, Senator Markey. He thought this was just stupid, stupid stuff. And why pay money for stupid stuff like that? He was, and his brother had a chop shop in which they were taking city vehicles and chopping them up and selling the parts. He and his brother were later caught. I don't know if either of them were ever punished for it because of their fine connections and them being fine people. And so you can imagine, this is a guy who would publicly say something against an artist who was trying to make a point about communication between species and also amuse people. I mean, I consider, I'm not Abby Hoffman, but I really believe in a humorous edge to my artwork and to my life as an artist. And so he, he was a nasty sucker. And yet at the same time, he would take advantage and steal millions. Unfortunately, a lot of people who end up in politics are like that. Really, I can't think of anybody myself. <laughs> I assume it's not getting worse. It just, you know, as I get older, I'm paying more attention than I did when I was younger. But regrettably, it's getting worse. Mm-hmm. We have never in my lifetime the foundations of the American democracy threatened to the level we have had. Uh, and it's worse week by week. I mean, it's not just worse over the last decade. It's, or it's, it's uh, you know, it's been worse since the Second World War. And it's gone back and forth throughout the history of our country. I mean, there have been good and bad moments, but given the uh, modern media and modern tools, we're seeing expert felons. It's kind of a crazy time. It's not just that you're paying more attention. It's that it's gotten so loud you couldn't avoid paying attention. I mean, we've lived through a magical time where we had a renaissance in the arts, you know, since the Second World War. But now life is getting much more serious again in the ways that it impact everyone's being that we suddenly all being swept up. Well, my concert for the two Charlies was an anti-war concert. My last concert in Lincoln Center before I kind of went, I became more of a public space artist. Being a bugler, I wrote a piece, a trumpet concerto. In it, the trumpeter's job is to play taps and he becomes so infuriated and so upset in the course of the piece that he can't play taps. And so taps has to be played for him by someone off stage. And I think that that's how I deeply felt at that time, that I refused to play, to have to play for another death that has been rendered meaningless because of being in the service of someone else's bad deal. But I tell you, I prefer to tell the story through music. I can't, I'm not a political organizer. I can only give my message in sound, hopefully, and if it will last longer and affect more generations. You know, you just mentioned how that was your last concert in one of the major halls. What was the decision behind leaving the concert hall behind and going into public spaces? I wanted to reach more people. I wanted the challenge of reaching more people. One of the reasons I became a jingle writer was was in order to, as a professional, having to hone my craft to create things that would really reach people. 
I like the challenge very much of being in public spaces and to um, use the public sound space and encourage other people to, because I never did my performances alone. One of the things I learned from curator Anders, he called the show a gathering. And he said that I was pointed out to me, I've always been gathering people together to do things. And in that respect, uh, I like the idea of making gatherings and mediaizing them. I think that the, that, was, that was the meaning also to begin to cross cultural lines, also to decommodify the music, to give it away, have it, have it be for free. I felt that uh, my job was to keep myself alive and get my message out. Because the more I uh, be in the service of somebody else's budget, the more the, more the spin was not mine. And uh, I guess what really inspired me in that is the work of Goya. If you've ever been to the Prado, you can see the pictures he made of the cardinals and the the nobles, these are incredible portraits and which in their own way also reveal the character of the people by showing them exactly the way they are and the way they want to be seen. Just amazing. And then at the same time, he did political cartoons. I mean, I think the most profound ones, the people with a wheelbarrow throwing a body into a pauper's grave with the other bodies. And it says, Carida, charity. So Goya's spectrum really interested me. You know, I was doing a little research in a newspaper magazine archive, digital one, and a lot of what was coming up was from backstage and variety and mentioning you in terms of the jingles you had just gotten signed to do. Often quite rare for a creative to figure out how to balance both. How did you balance a very successful, you know, commercial career with, you know, also creating these huge gatherings? You know, I, I, I don't think I, I, I really know. I think that I'm an adept organizer. And as an adept organizer, I could produce as well as think up what I had to do. So the process from thought to doing and to then putting it into orbit, launching was um, one of my favorite pieces I've, I've ever done is the launch scene from Moonwalk One. It was included in this show where you watch the rocket going off and it starts out with this very violent, slow-mo picture of the fire and the sound. I had to create all the sound. There was no sound that could be recorded of that launch. I recorded everything. I made it all up. I thought that was the sound, actual sound of the... I well, a sonic illusion. I'm a sonic illusionist. I mean, that's how I get by is I'm a, nothing but an illusionist. So with my illusionist skills, I created that. But also my partner and my client had this view uh, of how that should feel. And he wanted it to involve a pipe organ and I rented a pipe organ and I recorded it and it goes from the harsh sound of the rockets and the explosions, the ethereal sounds of a pipe organ. And in a way that's a commercial mm-hmm. for a certain kind of spirituality. And if, if you wish, since the organ was in a church, it may be connected for him with say a Christ, Christian spirituality. I mean, I balanced that, balanced each job by doing it as well as I could, making it work so that it was not overbearing to experience it multiply. Uh, my associate Juan Downey uh, at the time did a wonderful art video called Information Withheld. And I think it's through making things imperfect that things can truly be experienced because it's then that the viewer has a place for themselves in it. It's a question of project by project to find the, the balance. I once engaged a woman to write some press release for my, co- my jingle company. This woman, Levin, who's a comedy writer on Broadway. And she wrote, all the people in Charles Morrow Associates, which was the name of the company then, are funambulists, tightrope walkers, 
energy management. When you're talking about taking the idea uh, for the larger event and then producing it, at what point did you start bringing other people in? Was it strictly your idea from the beginning and you really thought it out before you started collaborating or was it a collaboration from the beginning? Well, let's take this case specifically uh, of, of event making. Well, when I was a high school student, I would put together events, musical events, in order to do ideas. So, for example, I got my brass ensemble in high school to play Gabrielli very slow and walk very slowly to the stage. It was a joke. But that turned out to be the, my first metamusical piece in the beginning of my career, bending music to my ideas. The show, this retrospective, the critic, local critic here was most impressed by the Gabrielli. Of all the things, there was a soundscape that included an hour and a half samples from my last work. And there's something she said about the fragility of that piece. Because uh, I did a recording of it then at the University of Vermont years later, and not everybody was a great player, but it made it even better. So I, I was able to be spontaneous and just say, hey, let's do it and make things happen. But that that's part one, just that particular organizer's chops. But the um, as far as the specific events that started to be with targeted ideas, I was out in Boulder, Colorado, uh, visiting an astronomer named Garrett Fischkuhler, who's still around. I think he's down in Vanderbilt University. And we'd met each other through sending radar signals out through this, to the moon and, uh, and such, which was something I could do as a ham radio operator. And he got me the sound of pulsars. And so I was out there looking to get a job, maybe to put a sound system in a new planetarium. I said, hey, it's solstice, summer solstice. We're all going to go up into the Rocky Mountains here. You know, boulders nestled in the Rockies. And we, I went up with a group of astronomers and locals. They formed a circle. So we're going to have a solstice celebration. Welcome to the sun. I said, it's fantastic. We've been indoors. And I said, yes, outdoors. It's wonderful. And at that point, they asked me to well, make a sun chant for us. I was known as a chant composer. And so I spontaneously said, Sun and none, 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 sun and none, 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 and they all answered. And that was it. <laughs> when they answered, I realized I could not do this alone. I felt totally different from that point on. And uh, so I became, you know, an organizer. My poet friend Rothenberg and I worked together to make a series at Washington Square Church. And then um, I did my first solstice event through the parks department. And I got Carol Weber, who's a flutist friend of mine at the time, and we were working on some pieces. And we went out and played. So somebody came along with us, a friend of hers who had a little kid. And we went through the, um, the fog of the morning on January 21st. And this was back in the 70s. And suddenly, because we had gotten a permit in a parks department, there were the three major networks there. Hey, you guys are late. It's set up. We're here to shoot you. I mean, how could I possibly have believed? No one said to me that they're going to send the media. And so we started playing and it became a media event. And so I guess it was uh, the ham from ham radio, the ham in me more than radio. <laughs> I went with it and there it is. I love all the photographs I've seen and also the posters for all the solstice events. Are there video recordings of them? We didn't get, my first video solstice was in 87. There was occasional videos of, of things. I mean, the first solstice it's, uh, with 40 cellos, it was uh, eight millimeter, I think it was. Uh, def definitely recordings made of Rip Heyman's piece. And I think possibly mine. I've never seen, I haven't come, I haven't found it yet. Because these old tapes need to be uh, 
transferred. So I think there's been a number, this stuff is starting to turn up. People have photographs and, and video. I was at that time kind of so focused on the events and, and, and just not adept at hyping myself that I, I didn't arrange the media very systematically. And that way, I just have to say that I've been very sloppy throughout my career as far as that part of it goes. Been better at making the actual thing than promoting them. And uh, recently, with all the interest in my work, it's truly been the ability of my label in LA and the curator here in Finland to get the message across in such a way that becomes they could share their interest in my work with others. Because I, I guess I, I lack the ability to package myself. It's not always a skill that people who are creatives also have. It's helpful to have another person who does it for you. But also, in a way, it sounds kind of wonderful because you were so in the moment, in the present of being at the event and being part of the event that you weren't concerned with how it was being, how other people outside would see it. You were actually super present, which is the way it should be, I think. Certainly um, the, way, the way it is for me. I was reading something about Spirit Ways. Is that what it was called? The one that was like shaman, Siberian shaman singing. Spirit. Oh, yes, 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 spirit, spirit voices. I took the role of the, of the Siberian shaman. Uh, years ago, I did a lot of work around Saka, Yakutian uh, shaman robes. So I did a lot of research and writing about it. How did you get interested in shamanism and then also like the chanting? Well, it was a convergence of three, three forces. I had always been interested in, um, in chanting and in studio and in finding my own voice rather than becoming the other when it came to cross-ethnic explorations. Mm -hmm. So those three forces come together. In a nutshell, I worked with uh, Professor Rhodes uh, and in my ethnomusicological studies at Columbia. And he, he for example, he, he had the ability to write music as fast as he heard it, so he could transcribe. And he had field recordings. He did the uh, Maria Sabina tapes, he's most, I think, most famous for. She was a Mazatec shaman lady who not only was extraordinary in her own singing and where she was going, but her work has been transcribed and translated into, into English and Spanish and probably many other languages, inspiring First Nation artists, not only um, poets from the, the New York Poetry School who took an interest in her work, Ann Waldman's Changing Woman and Diana Prima, or all or absolutely, you know, through Rothenberg and that community, I was in touch with ethnic poetry and, and which brought me in touch with the poets, the actual people in those communities, which was a, an important part of my life. So I've never seen a sense of other. So I didn't want to become a cross ethnic singer. I had studied uh, Egyptian singing with an Egyptian singer and learned to sing some Quranic chants. But it, it, it felt wrong because my uh, mastery of Arabic was, was tr truly American influenced. All my vowels were wrong. And besides, it was hard for me to worship Allah. Mm -hmm. Just couldn't get there. And I, I should, let's say, come out here in public and admit to being a spiritual anarchist. I belong to no faith and belong to all. It is impossible for me to sign up. I'm already there. <laughs> and so when I built my studio, I had been working with my colleague Rothenberg 
And in order to record his horse songs, which were Navajo songs, which he had translated into English, but with not just the words, but the words, the in-between words and the sounds, what he called total translation. And so he asked me to record it. And it was going to be a multiple, multi, multi-layer recording. So I bought a four-track machine and I built a studio. It was that time at a friend's studio. And then finally I got my own big place and I could put up the studio. But I'd recorded Rothenberg where he took the role of the leader of the horse songs. And the songs themselves are a ceremony in, in which I think it's from the changing of the clans. And they're talking about coming back from the spirit journey on the magic horses. And so on the first track, he knows the words real well. The second track, someone's working with him that sort of knows the words almost as well. Then someone who's trying to learn and then someone who's just faking and going along. So the four levels of involvement with this totally translated song created the recording I made of Rothenberg. And so when I built my own studio, I thought, well, what the hell, I'll do some singing myself. And I recorded on that day, a number of chants alone in the apartment on West End Avenue. And they became the album with the bear on it. And they were each for a different time of day. And I'd already become sensitive to the fact that different times of day and different seasons have the right feeling in the music. And that's what the ceremonies and my public events were about to respond to the turn of the year. And my solstice was particularly that because it was a time of undeniable transition in nature. And I wanted to celebrate it without it belonging to anyone's spiritual calendar because it predated that. Even though there are holidays based on it, let's get back to the sun. And I think that's what Sun Ra said too when he was talking to me. It's basic. We're not worshiping the sun, he said, because he said people were getting arrested for worshiping the sun. Because at the time in 89, when we did our solstice, I think that the sun dance became illegal. Well, it's a political dance. It's an intense dance in which people are dancing for the rolling back of the modern world and nature to come in back and take over again. Basically get rid of all the colonialists. It's like wishing yourself out of existence if you're a white American of European background. And in the dance, you blow a whistle from an eagle bone. So you hear the people pierce themselves and they dance until they pull their muscles out of their body. It's bloody. So the dance was outlawed, but that was what was in the newspaper. And there we were doing the solstice. So a very complicated situation. But there I was trying to find my way. Meanwhile, (laughs) back at my past in my apartment on West End Avenue at the time, in my first studio, making a multi-track recording of my voice, different chant for different part of the day. And I think from that came the idea of gathering others to find a way for everybody to find their way into the singing. And the Siberian work was important because the role of the shaman was to be in the place of others. The shaman was taking the role for someone else. I mean, one of the, uh, this taking the role of is very important. For example, one of the great quotes from Lame Deer, Richard Erdos's book on Lame Deer was, I must dance my own pain. I will not dance for someone else who has done suffering for me. I don't need no Jesus. And here I was in a Siberian 
trying to take on that Siberian role. Well, what does it mean? Put that skin on and, and, and go there. And so there I was trying to make the journey, you know, I already, um, by then was recovering my pre-birth memories and I was trying to make this journey. So that's what the piece was about. Surrounded by pots of fire, surrounded by a brass ensemble, a brass guy, and I know a lot of brass people and he would be able to do responsive singing. Voice and brass is always good. The shout band is a, a staple item in a lot of you know, Baptist churches. So I was doing that as a, to take that journey. And so I took an air journey, subterranean journey, a subaqueous journey. And when I came back, I took the voice of a young cat. I just had a, a, ba a baby uh, cat uh, come living with me, my first cat. And uh, she knew that I put the sound of her, of her song at the very end of, this, of the journey. Because somehow in hearing her, her voice, I, I finally heard something else. Did you put that on a tape with New Wilderness or was that on? No, it's never been published. I put it, it was on a NYC broadcast and it's, uh, I performed it first at the kitchen, you know, the kitchen center, when it, before it moved to its Mercer Street location, uh, I was opposite Niche who had hung the place with cow carcasses. <laughs> it's also around the time that I was working with uh, the performance group and, and Schechner and uh, doing the healing work, but it's never been published. It's probably, it should be, it's a nice piece. Yeah, I'm like, I really wanna hear it. <laughs> definitely can put it out. Well, that's good because um, Sean, McCann, who's been publishing things in my archive, has been open to all this. And so I think that it would be a good idea to put that spirit voices out. I read a mention of the healing book. Was that ever published? Was that a published book? Or was it just something? The healing book? No, it was just, I, I just made copies of it. Or um, we have a small artist edition of it. We, I used it in heal, healing workshops. And uh, we're looking to publish it, I think, at some point. We had a, another book which came around the same time called The Gathering of Healers. That's the final part of this show I'm doing in Finland. It's a publication of The Gathering of Healers. And I have been having Zoom interviews with the people who are on the book who are still alive. Amazing. And so that gets me back to, um, I was in touch with the people. A part of my show is involved Richard Erdos and his friends, who said I wrote the Lindia book, introduced me to Muriel and the women in the spider woman company. So spider woman is always a, a big part of things and the spider woman tradition goes back in fact to, uh, I'm pretty sure to Maria Sabina. And you mentioned John Rothenberg, who you, was your constant collaborator for decades. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly, still is. And you had the New Wilderness together? Yeah, we had the New Wilderness Foundation together. Right? We had a concert series and then we produced the solstices and then uh, published Ear Magazine, published New Wilderness Letter, which was, uh, of course, it's a continuation of Altsharinga Al Magazine. Uh, there were 13 numbers of, of that. Uh, those are, there's, there's sort of facsimiles of those online from University of Pennsylvania. I think at some point they will re reissue those. Ear Magazine is being digitized by uh, NYU libraries boxed. They're supposed to be making that searchable so that you can get all those copies. So we published ear, we did all the ear benefits and the activities around ear. We did new, new wilderness audio cassettes. My collaborations, they were the first experimental collect cassette label that's all available on Bandcamp nowadays. 
and the number of them are my collaborators, one after another, as I went up to about 40 collaborators, at which point uh, it was, there were other labels doing that kind of thing. So there was no longer a need. I mean, my original model for New Wilderness was to provide services that were not around. So we provided my sound studio as an artist access studio. And as soon as other artist access studios were around, the Arts Council only supports, at those days, one of a kind. And so we handed off that to someone who wanted to do it full time. And a lot of what New Wilderness was about was being an incubator for ideas that would sustain an arts organization. I've always been far better at initiating things that would then require more expert hands to grow them further. More of a, what do you call it, a midwife than a gardener. It sounds like if that was all at the same time that you were also running Charles Morrow Associates, that you must have been the busiest person. It was frantic. It was frantic. I'm knowing a calm and a peacefulness since the 20th century uh, to my Finnish partner who has a value for, for private time. I regretted that. Uh, I mean, I stopped doing the solstices because uh, I was almost unable to attend my daughter's birth because I was too busy getting the June 21st show together when she was born on May 28th. And fortunately, I was able to be in the room when she was born and I had to learn to be a different person through fatherhood and now through a very balanced and healthy woman who's got a strong vision for private life. And oh, I've become a different guy, but can I tell you, it's actually quite, quite rewarding. When you finished the solstice is around when you also started shifting out of doing the commercial, the jingles and everything? Yeah, I was, uh, during the 90s, the jingle business Died. It became more a business of licensing, you know, well-known material. And then people starting to build libraries, good libraries, as the field became more digital and it became more and more possible to handle sound well to a lot more people who came into the field who weren't bound by the obligation to write music, hire musicians, and so forth. Before the 90s, you had to be a jack of all trades in order to be a jingle producer or work with a group because there was the Business, business, the technical, the artistic, the uh, inspirational, and the marketing angles. During the 90s, as the business began to look like it was going down the tubes, I was still working, but I felt that I would, you know, the business always revolved around working for young creatives. And I felt that already in the, uh, in the 90s, uh, you know, I was born in 42, so I was in my 50s, that as a guy in his 50s, that it was going to be hard for me to maintain, the, you know, have relationships with the people who were going to be the new, the new face of the business anyway, regardless of where it was going. And so I started to do more museum installation works and became involved with the ideas of immersive sound. The technology that was killing the jingle business for me was opening the door to making controlled sound fields. And since I could do it with physical materials as a physical event maker and electronics, I was uh, able to really work. And I'd always been able to work because of being a multi-hat. I mean, when I first got into jingles, I could do sound design and composition and arranging and run sessions and do bookings and hustle, all of that. And that made it possible for me to work and be paid, you know, for one of those and get a job, you know, the young guy who you could get to do this job for less money and get a good job, you know. And in the 90s then, I was the guy who understood technology and could bring it into museums but I also understood maintenance, uh, I also understood installation, because normally all of the work integrators install all the, all the technology and anything that's permanent. 
So in the course of that, I became more and more involved with the field of integration. And in the last couple of years, my integrator and I have gone into business together. So Park Boulevard Productions and Willie Fastenau, you know, work with me. Willie's basically the boss of the enterprise that does all of that work around the world because it's a field in which it's become highly technical. You have to maintain the equipment so that it provides sensitive and um, ever-evolving interface with people and is manageable all the time. In, in, in the information age, most technology is, is completely firewalled so that you don't have, sensibly, we don't have access to the information systems in hospitals, museums, universities. I mean, look at all the hacking that goes on with all of the firewalls. So, I mean, it's an endlessly cat and mouse game, you know, with hackery. So, uh, I've, at this point, mainly involved with the theoretical side of my work and moving it moving it forward and inventing new things for sound to do and guiding my business, but not running it. And so what happened in the 90s was the beginning of a movement towards immersive sound production and then building a business in it, uh, getting patents, understanding then my relationship to the basic idea, which brought me then, as you can imagine, this week in touch with the writings of the guy who inspired me in the first place. And with the fact that when I was a kid, I learned how to build antennas, which rely on the properties of interaction between the ground and the waters and the heavens, which is what happens in my interim, in all of my uh, transmissions, my events, and in fact, in my patent for controlled immersive sound. So the, um, these things, they circulate in the most extraordinary way. And I'm sure it keeps you really engaged to be still working with new technology and reapproaching the same ideas, but from a completely new technologies that didn't exist 10, 20 years ago, you know, especially, and especially now when you were a child and first thinking about these things, did you feel like it keeps your brain young and agile and active? I think I'm lucky to have something to think about. I think I'm a hyperactive person and that I would probably be, I spent my life in a hospital if I hadn't found things to engage myself because I'm, um, I'm a little disorganized and a little dyslexic. I feed, feed negatively as well off of this incredible urge to make new things. So it, it, I still a funambulist, as, as Miss Levin joking, jokingly said. <laughs> it's a double-edged sword. You say you're disorganized, but to have pulled off all of the, the events you pulled off, that takes so much organization. I guess you're a very good producer, even while being disorganized. I think so. Yeah, because, um, well, I think that what I'm lucky about is that I enjoy the faith and cooperation of really good people. Mm-hmm. When I was a performing musician full time, I always wished to be the worst player in any band I played in. And I've carried that forward in everything I do. So I think I'm just really lucky to be surrounded by people who are better than me and for some reason to have been constructed in such a way that I appreciate that and don't feel threatened. Mm-hmm. I think if I was a little more of a control freak and I'm just on the edge with being able to produce like that because it takes enormous willfulness to make, make things happen, that uh, try to find a way to work from within, not to get into too many struggles, you know. It's, it's complex, I mean, my, 
my disorganization is the fact that my mind will keep working on things even after they've been zeroed in. I mean, my job, let's say, is to never stop worrying. So I found a, a way to live with that skin. Do you have trouble handing over control to the people that you work with? Sometimes, but it depends on the situation, depends what it is. I mean, I never have trouble in an environment where we all understand what we're doing and everything comes together. I'm able to, within those spider webs, to quickly fix, unthreateningly, uh, make them, you know, wh where I get lucky, where everything comes together, able to fix things without getting caught on an unnecessary Velcro, you know? Because there, you know, there are sticking points. And so I have been, I have gotten into stupid arguments. I have gotten into, uh, I've sometimes fallen into people's crosshairs and that, that becomes an issue. It's hard, I have to take it one situation at a time. Some, some of them are impossible and some relationships, you know, wear out. You know, not everything's intended to last forever. I'll never forget when my, uh, after that horrible time when I almost didn't get to be with my wife and uh, when my daughter was born and my mother took me aside and, and just told me to close down the wilderness, get out of it. I have had to be a, in the world, meet my obligations that it was too demanding, too time consuming, a distraction. Mm -hmm. And I've needed those voices in my life, I have. I mean, sometimes finding out those things on my own, I react too slowly. You know, being a producer requires having a hair trigger, but some things require a different, a different sensibility. <laughs> so you said your current wife has helped you also slow down. How did you meet her? I was on tour in uh, Finland with Jerry Rothenberg. We have from time to time gone on tour together. And so we were performing in a, a club in Finland and I met her at the club. We stayed in touch and when my uh, relationship with my then wife was falling apart and uh, we separated. Uh, she, she and I met and she came to New York and we worked together and she then worked with me in the business and in life. We wound up closing the New York studio down together after my divorce mm -hmm. in 2003. We moved up to Vermont where I had a country place and she started to organize the, the house and the archive, it's her vision of the archive. The house itself is filled with mementos of so many projects and she made it an index as well as a magical place to be. She guided the uh, archivist, a local friend. Then our life changed when her father passed away and her mother was unable to manage on her own in Finland. And so we'd always been commuting back and forth. And uh, so then she started to be in Finland full time with her mother and where I am now. And her mother is with us still. It meant reorganizing everything. It was at that point that it was really clear that uh, my integrator should take over. It was already clear for, from the standpoint of people in their 30s with the energy and the know-how and the more up-to-the-minute knowledge of what was both the technology and the ways of business and the ways of the world should take over. This, some of my life has been like an old dog who still runs around a tree that's been cut down in the backyard. You know? And he goes out. With all this technology, you can keep in touch with everybody who's working for you everywhere in the world so easily. Well, having been a ham radio operator and uh, as part of my vision, I suppose I'm lucky. That's, I think that's the secret of 
what's kept me going because it doesn't matter where I am. I mean, and it's, um, it, it's been amazing that history has brought me to this place at this time. So I, I indeed believe in the miraculous. And this is miraculous. Yeah, it is. Of everything in your life, what are you most proud of? I guess that I've been able to make my life as an artist. Uh, that I think more than anything of being able to make art in the, in the service of others, because I've been able to make my life as an independent artist. I truly lack the humanity and uh, the discipline to be a, a teacher. So I have to say that whatever I do and whatever I teach, I do through my works and my collaborations and my gatherings. But I think that th this is the miracle to be here talking to you about a life that still is. Would you ever be interested in doing another, well, once we can gather again, <laughs> physical solstice? I think that that's, I'm quite interested in it, yes. The last two solstices I did were called Solstice 24. I did them in Finland. They were 24 hours, one hour in each time zone. They truly conveyed the rotation of the Earth. They truly brought together a wide range of activities. And I'm thinking about potentially doing another one, I suppose. I'm a solstice junkie. But I would hope it would be possible for people to meet, because I think the I do feel the presence of the world and gravity and so forth in an interior, but I, it does feel like returning, you know, re returning, partway returning to the womb mm -hmm. and losing the constant contact that more steady connection with others brings. When did you do those solstice ones in Finland? Uh, two years ago and three years ago. They're all on video. I'm thinking that some hybrid of this, I'm thinking it needs to be organized. One, one, I did one with the Smithsonian. My, my field of studies is Arctic studies and the head of Arctic studies, Bill Fitzhugh and I put one together. We, I'm hoping perhaps since the sun is the Smithsonian symbol and they either by accident or from the conversation that we started did a little solstice stuff. I'm sending out some feelers to see if it might be good for them. I'm not sure how that all might work. You know, they have their own agendas. I mean, it's a huge place. There's a lot of agendas, and it is, in fact, at the mercy of the U.S. government. At the time that Reagan became president, the Smithsonian's had the most advanced new media studios in America. They were ahead of everybody, including Microsoft and so forth. And Reagan had them destroyed, removed the budget, and 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 because they were, at the same time, politically inspiring people, third ways, nations, and so forth. The whole idea of being a media winged with the entire history of the U.S. and the world as their resources. And they were ultimately fried for it. So I'll tell you, um, I'm not sure. I think maybe, maybe I've done my job in calling out the danger and showing that it can be done and that there are others who will see a way to do it. Because I think you always have to be out of the control of the institutions, there's no way to trust them. Anybody that will sponsor you has their agenda. So uh, I enjoy, I've always enjoyed speaking from a pulpit of one and gathering people together that would like to get an idea across and then moving on. Mm -hmm. I've seen the success and danger through advertising of big ideas. I mean, I brought hefty, hefty, hefty to the world for which I would probably roast in it roast in some either warm or cold place, depending on whether you think it's that way. Certainly the Arctic people do not think it's a warm place. 
<laughs> I was delighted to see. <laughs> I never thought about that before, but yeah. Yes, warm is good. <laughs> you live in cold place. No, it's, it's very complicated because um, bringing together a lot of different forces has always brought together a lot of different opinions. Mm -hmm. In my New Wilderness days, I remember one person or another would say, how could you publish that person's work? They're really terrible. So no matter what you do, there's, it's, it's always the old legend of the uh, woman with a kid and a donkey trying to cross a bridge. Somebody there to, uh, with an opinion. So I have to say, I like to think that he make each work so it can speak for itself. I watched the one that you, the winter solstice one that you did, which was lovely. I loved the four winds. I thought that was a beautiful piece. I do, I also love the idea of someday going to one of your, a big solstice celebration of yours in the future. <laughs> well, I hope that, I hope that it will happen. I really do. But know that there, there are people out there who are also gatherers and wonder, who have wonderful ideas and I'm sure will mm -hmm. make these things happen. You know? I, you know, I've been very pleased to be able to do it from the art side, you know, I suppose. Uh, I, I think it's, it's very nice to have kind of a diverse and multicultural community that brings together a lot, a lot of different energies. And I, I, I mostly, I, I value that. It's quite different from producing a rock concert or a themed event with a commercial sponsor. Maybe the real question that comes to mind is I'm, I'm listening to you and it comes up in me is what, what, was, what am I looking for in bringing this sort of thing to life that I didn't find elsewhere? Because I always like to think I've composed music that I, I heard and haven't heard elsewhere. And as an event maker, I enjoy a certain degree of organization and a certain degree of anarchy and a certain degree of pure doctrine and a certain degree of totalness. I think that's what makes them sound so special. Having grown up exposed to more commercial events, you know, where everything is highly regulated. So spontaneity is regulated. The idea of a little pure anarchy sounds great. Thank you. <laughs> I feel compelled to speak on one thing, which really, uh, having heard the words of someone, sat here just a day ago, transcribing him. He said, I'm an evil person. I don't want to be a good person. The people who are righteous in this world are the ones who are taking advantage of people. He told the story of a, a black man who said that uh, God is always with me. God is always with me. But he's always fucking me up. And I thought the humanity, the sheer humanity, and yet the sheer rage and what Sunrise was talking about, the righteous people, I so worry then in our world, we have people who find it in them to be in that way righteous and at the same time so cruel mm -hmm. and thoughtless and mean-spirited to others and perhaps can even enjoy it. And in a way, though, I once asked, you know, how, how, how can the world change? And I think it's when the righteous people wake up and can take what it is that's in them that is love and find room in their hearts for someone except for themselves and their communities. In my study of traditional communities, most of them are extremely narrow, backbiting, preserving culture, but at the same time, preserving a certain real playground mentality. And I think that's something we've got to move beyond. Otherwise, the more of us on the earth, the worse. It's not just the pandemics and people not keeping the world clean and worrying about each other's communities. It seems to be the tragic flaw here. Thank you so much for all of this. 
I so appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. That's my pleasure. And uh, the door is always open. Thanks again for listening to this conversation with Charlie Morrow. Please head to our website to see images from throughout his career, some video and audio clips, as well as a short article. See you next week.